Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Joining us for this fortnightly topical podcast is a regular CapEx contributor, Sam Ashworth-Hayes. Sam is a writer and policy analyst and you'll find his work on CapEx, Telegraph and The Spectator, among other places. There's plenty for us to chew over over the last couple of weeks. So as ever, we'll divide the pod into a few sections We'll start off with a bit on the never-ending Partygate saga, uh, which Sam has written a column about recently, Boris Johnson's prospects leading into the local elections. Then we'll talk about the government's big Rwanda asylum seekers plan and a bit more on post-Brexit immigration in general, because we've had some very interesting uh, figures on, on who's coming into the UK now that we've changed our immigration system. And we'll finish with a section on the online safety bill, which is now known in centre-right policy circles as the dreaded online safety bill, which Sam has a CapEx piece on this week and has plenty to talk about. So, Sam, thanks very much for joining us all the way from the Isle of Man, I should add. Um, so great to have you with us. We'll start with Partygate because that was really the, the big political story this week. We had quite a heated PMQs yesterday about it. I mean, what's your sense now in terms of uh, the... The politics of this is it doing actually that much more damage to Boris Johnson now? Because it feels like we're just drip dripping the same things over and over again. It feels quite quite circular to me. Um, well, obviously, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's absolutely great to be here, um, as you say, from the Isle of Man. I mean, my my personal sense on this, I, I suppose, it, it, it's possibly not as data-driven as it should be. Um, it, it feels like we've already had this point where Labour sort of cross uh, the Conservatives in the polls, and that to the extent that damage is being done right now, it, I think people are upset about Partygate. I don't think it's necessarily a killer, because if you aren't going to sort of uh, step down on your own accord because of it, it doesn't feel like the sort of thing that will actually drive you out or cause your MPs to drive you out until there's actually electoral consequences down the road. Um, and on that front, if I were in Boris Johnson's shoes, I would be far more concerned about the cost of living and sort of the economic situation more generally than I would be about exactly, where, you know, the, the terms under which I was ambushed by a cake. Indeed. It does feel as though the the kind of moment has gone in terms of MPs trying to unseat him. We had a, a flurry a few months ago when it, the sort of first um, Sue Gray report came out the first bit of the Sue Gray report, because it was very heavily redacted. 
we've had the odd MP now coming out saying, oh, you know, I don't think the prime minister should stay in his post, like Mark Harper, Peter Alders, people like that. But do you see a kind of proximate way of... Do you see any momentum behind any attempts to unseat him? In a way, he seems to me he's quite lucky because there's no obvious kind of prints across the water. Rishi Sunak's obviously been somewhat blown out of the water by all this um, tax and non-dom stuff. So for Conservative MPs, it, it, they're in a bit of a bind, aren't they? I mean, it's got to better the devil you know rather than going for you know the uncertainty of a leadership contest. I mean, you look at some of the names being floated and uh, Liz Truss has many positive qualities, but I don't know. I would think she'd be somewhat untested in that sort of arena. Um, Rishi was very popular while he was busy throwing money around There's No Tomorrow and now he's uh, asking people to pay the taxes. He's suddenly unpopular again, which I think everyone saw coming. Um, it did leaving aside everything else. I, I would say, looking at it, that if there were to be a vote, I would expect Boris to win anyway. So it kind of, I don't really see much prospect of him being sort of forced to step down, um, certainly prior to local elections. And I think even if they do have a very bad showing in the local elections, which I think is entirely plausible, I think there's a pretty good chance he stays on afterwards as well. Yeah, the thing to note, I think, on the locals is that the Tories aren't defending that many councils. So the kind of electoral consequences aren't that obvious. Also, the fact we don't know when the next general election is adds to that uncertainty. Do you think from from Labour's point of view, the constant... Keir Starmer keeps saying, oh, he should resign, he should resign, he should resign. I mean, it doesn't strike me that this is a very effective tactic because it, it weakens the currency of calling for a resignation if you keep on doing it and then nothing happens. I, I think that's more fundamental... Um... More sort of more fundamental than it, than it sort of seems in that a, a, a great deal of British politics basically runs on these sort of norms and conventions and has done for quite a long time, which there's not actually a great deal you can do to force people out of office. You expect them to sort of do the proper thing and resign. So in the future, when your opponents uh, misbehave in some way, they will do the proper thing and resign. Um, and it turns out this system isn't very robust to what one might call a certain degree of sort of a shameless self-interest. Um, so if you end up with someone like Boris in, in position who actually turns around and says, well, you know what, I think this sort of uh, this idea that I should resign this is a load of bunk, I'm not going anywhere. All these people sort of sit there looking increasingly cross and saying, but the rules are. And so actually the rules are you can do basically whatever you like, um, so long as you get a backing of the majority of the House. So I I think it's it's more Simon's basically still conducting politics as though it's 2015, 2014, sort of, but prior to this whole Brexit period, it's really, not, not to go all remotely, but I think really sort of highlighted the extent to which a government which really wanted to can just ignore some of these conventions and sort of move on to, to get things done. But I mean, this is this is kind of Starmer's approach to a lot of things. So if you if you read him on international affairs prior to the Ukraine crisis, he's been very good in Ukraine. I'll give him that. But um, his his approach is fairly often guided by saying, "Well, actually, look under the under the sort of terms of the international law, this is what should happen," um, as opposed to sort of focusing on how one would force it to happen. Yeah, that's something we've um, mentioned uh, on a recent pod with. Um... Helen Dale, actually, about the fact that international law is a sort of nice idea, but without the um, the mean, as we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine, we keep on seeing these kind of quite vacuous calls to kind of put Putin in the Hague. Well, if you don't have the any way of enforcing that, then it, it's just a kind of uh, it's a bit of a hand wave. Just coming on to the, I mean, we've talked about the kind of political consequences. I mean, the actual substance of the allegations. I think that. 
Boris's defenders are focusing very heavily on the idea that it's just having a bit of cake and him appearing in the cabinet room and stuff like that. But it strikes me that if, if he were to get another fixed penalty notice, then that defence wouldn't hold up at all. It would be, well, actually, it's not just the cake. It's, it's this, that or the other. To my mind, it's more the kind of... Organ- the problem is more of an organisational one. It's the fact that all these things happened on his watch rather than whether he personally was there or not. I mean, yeah, so to, to a certain degree, the Prime Minister is going to be responsible for setting the zone and setting the culture of the organisation. I would say, though, that to sort of turn this around a bit, even with that sort of said, I I think people are going to be very upset about it either way. I just don't think they will care enough for it to have an impact. If this had come out in, say, January 2021, I think the public would have been calling for his head on the spike and he'd been gone tomorrow. As is, I think the sort of general attitude, look, is COVID's over, the vaccines work, life is back to normal, um, 2020 is a long time ago, we're not that mad about it anymore. And for the people who are very upset and you know legitimately very upset, unfortunately that doesn't sort of make that big of a difference um the consequence as far as i see it that that matters most to me personally is we have a lot of people who are still being sort of chased through the courts for covid fines which are ridiculously harsh and for breaches which are considerably lesser than those which the the people in number 10 seem to have committed i mean you saw the other day this teenager who was working as a key worker you know doing shifts in in the co-op over and over again i think he went off to I think he had Nando's in a car with a colleague or something, and he got. Oh a yeah, I saw this. It. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. So he gets this four hundred pound fine. He's got a record for life. And I think the thing is now the decent thing for the government to do: be turn around and say, "Well, look, obviously these rules were overly harshly enforced. They were overly stringent. They weren't actually led by the evidence because we knew perfectly well they weren't actually less unsafe ourselves because we were busy breaking them all the time. And uh, you know, given at least some sort of a." some sort of amnesty to sort of people who've been caught out by them. But now because Boris has had this sort of whole debacle, um, that seems really unlikely to happen. So a lot of people are going to be stuck with these fines and stuck with criminal uh, consequences of them. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. As we've mentioned before on this podcast, I think the villain of the piece really is this sort of arbitrary and, and very silly rules themselves. Uh, and that's what a lot of people feel quite angry about. Now, the other big thing in in politics in the last um, week or so, Sam, has been this plan to basically deport uh, asylum seekers, economic migrants, whatever you want to call them, to Rwanda. Now, some people described this as the classic Linton Crosby dead cat uh, plan to kind of distract from the government's problems over Partygate. It, It strikes me that that's probably... Perhaps you could say that in terms of the timing, but this is a plan that's been in in the offing for for quite some time. Indeed, it was first mooted in 2003 by David Blunkett, not to Rwanda, but the government had planned to build sort of offshore centres for asylum seekers back then. So it's not really, it's not like a a new idea that's just suddenly appeared. No, um, it's it's certainly not. And it's... It's really interesting, actually, to see the degree to which um, there has been resistance from the Home Office of basically being asked to do this. You can see, I think, you know, in, in some of the newspapers today, you've got civil services commenting, uh, civil servants, sorry, commenting on internal notice boards saying that, you know, uh, that you, you know, you can't use the excuse for only obeying orders, which I think is a ridiculous uh, comparison to make. You know, you have uh, people drawing all sorts of hyperbolic an- analogies to history. Yeah, but think, I've had it compared think... to the... Not the Nazis, as usual, it's sort of Godwin's law with any immigration-related policies. Yeah. You compare it to fascism or Nazism. Um, 
as you every, say. Every, this exactly. was kind of the plan, though, wasn't it, Sam? To kind of provoke opponents into saying ridiculous things. I don't know if it's a dead cat as such. I think I think using an international treaty and an arrangement with a, a friendly government purely to distract domestic attention, I think, would be a um, would be something of a, an overstep even for Boris and Co. So I, I I think this is something they've been genuinely looking at at least, and I I think to the extent to which it may prove to be some sort of political distraction, it'd be more sort of um, whipping up something with frenzy that allowing them to do other reforms. But I do think this is something they genuinely want to do. Um, and I also don't think it's a particularly bad policy in that if you look at the just the exponential growth in the number of people um, crossing the channel, uh, seeking to make an asylum claim, which they can do no matter how they enter the country, but then who may not actually have a legitimate asylum claim and plan sort of disappearance of the black economy and work underground, because people get very upset if you refer to illegal migration in this context. Indeed, you know, it's, it's a very kind of, there is a bit of grey area there, isn't there, between there is. who qualifies well, as an economic migrant or an asylum seeker or, you know. Exactly. Um, and so if you look at this sort of this idea of moving people over to, to, to around, uh, I think a big part of it is actually that you wouldn't have to move that many people in the first place. Because once people get the impression that if they arrive this way, they'll be sent there to be processing. And if they're successful, their claim will be processed there. It's a real disincentive to count. So it removes that sort of poll factor. And I suspect you wouldn't actually end up with that many people going there simply because once people know that's what's going to happen, they'll stop trying to come that way. I wonder as well, I mean, my own view is just that my sense from looking at what's happened, we always refer to Australia because they had a similar policy with boats arriving. It's just that it, it's it's a very expensive way of dealing with this problem. I mean, do you think it might be more efficient and easier to simply build centres in the UK or in a, at least in a territory that we control rather than sending people... 5,000 miles away. I mean, at the moment, the, the money, it's, it's very unclear what the costs are. The government seems remarkably reluctant to say what their costings are per person, partly, I suspect, because they don't necessarily know yet. Well, I mean, I mean, the plan isn't that they'll sort of go to Rwanda and then be brought back to the UK once it's been processed. The plan is that if they are successful, they'll stay in Rwanda. Yeah, as far as I know. But I think that the, the amount of money, we've seen lots of different figures banded about the original pilot is only 120 million pounds oh i'm sorry right sorry i see um, what you mean um so so my, my sense in this is the so the australian policy actually worked very very well um for the australians at least in that it basically just killed the number of people arriving by boats because they know that once they get they get there they're going to get shipped straight back out to be processed and so basically, it's like this uh, this deal with Turkey, which the EU did. I don't know if you remember this back in like, 2015, 16. So they have this huge number of people arriving by boat via Turkey. Um, the EU turns around and says, well, look, um, this is obviously ridiculous. We need to stop the number. We need to really lower the number of people coming. So they did a deal where basically every time someone arrived through a sort of non-official route, they would send them back to Turkey and Turkey would send someone who could arrive officially. So this is a one-for-one swap, so it doesn't look that sort of um, impressive on paper, but actually what it does is if you know you're going to, by getting there sort of um, by one route, you get shipped straight back, um, it reduces the incentive to do that entirely, and then the number of the um, crossings just plummets. So, and a very similar thing happened in Australia. So I'd imagine the plan is actually that while on a per unit basis, it's going to be quite a costly scheme, in terms of the disincentive effect, it'll be large enough to actually, if you look at the total number of crossings abated, it'll be really effective. Um, particularly as well as I think they're going to be focusing mostly on sort of young uh, single men rather than sort of families for this particular route. So it'll be the people who are most likely to be economic migrants will be the ones who are sort of um, picked out, I think. 
It's interesting as well because this is whatever opponents of this program say it's definitely touches a nerve with the public. There's a lot of disquiet about people arriving here in boats, um, especially after we've just been through this massive political battle over controlling um, our immigration system. And it strikes me that the, the British public have quite, maybe not, not hugely nuanced views, but they have different views on different types of immigration. It's not just knee-jerk, anti-immigration. Um, and one of the things that I found interesting this week was we have home office figures on post-Brexit migration. And actually, the number of work-related visas has gone up. But what's interesting is that the proportions of, di- of people coming from different countries has changed quite dramatically. We have a lot more people coming from former Commonwealth countries like, uh, sorry, well, current Commonwealth countries, uh, former sort of parts of the British Empire, basically Nigeria, Pakistan, India, uh, coming top of those, top of that list. I mean, does this kind of give the lie to, there was, there was always this kind of, you, we talked about hyperbole before, one of the bits of hyperbole we heard a lot was that Brexit was basically a kind of racist project because it was aimed at controlling immigration. But if anything, our, our immigration policy now is, is more liberal, it's just different to, to what we had before with free movement. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't think Brexit could ever sort of be particularly in terms of a race endeavour because if you turn around and you say the net effect of our policies we're going to have far fewer white people that emigrate into Britain and a greater proportion of non-white people just as a natural consequence of the whole thing um, it's really quite hard to frame it as an attempt to build any sort of ethno state so I will be interested to see how this shakes out because I don't think people have really been paying attention to the migration system very much simply because it's sort of been implemented during this really quite exceptional period um, and also they won't be sort of feeling the clothes on the ground yet and one of the things I suspect may I, it, it, I think people are very relaxed about high school immigration. Like they don't, you know, we are very selflessly willing to take on the, the burden of hosting the world's doctors, nurses, entrepreneurs. Um, we are a generous and unself-centered people. However, the way it's been done, which now gives sort of priority also to care workers who are not actually particularly skilled, um, and has also by also cutting the um, income requirement quite significantly, I wonder if that might come back at some point and bite us. Um, I would also, I believe the median household income is somewhere around £30,000. I think about 48% of households in the country, somewhere around that, receive more into sort the of benefits in, not benefits in cash benefits, you know, benefits in education, healthcare, that, all that kind of thing, like the, the things government provides and they, they pay in taxes. Um, so I would be interested to know if, I think the current cut off migration is about £25,000. I would be interested to know if from a treasury perspective this is expected to be sort of okay because if you if you come in at 25,000 you bring a spouse with you as long as they're working as well you should be fine but if you end up being sort of revenue neutral as an average household um, or even revenue negative rather um, I could see that presenting problems down the line It's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I suspect you're right that because of covid and coronavirus that immigration general immigration legal immigration and work-related immigration has not actually been that high up the agenda and what we have had is this strong focus on on the boats partly because it's just a more arresting visual story for the media than uh, sort of more long-term trends one thing um I was interested in those that we had a lot when Theresa May was prime minister, especially she envisaged a much tighter system where we basically clamped down on kind of all to all kinds of immigration. Um, but what we've seen in the latest figures is actually, for example, student numbers um, have actually gone up as well. There was a lot of fear that we were kind of uh, cutting off our nose to spite our face and we, we'd uh, end up with far fewer foreign students at uni, obviously, and foreign students obviously pay much higher fees, which is crucial to the kind of financial security of our institutions. I mean, do you think that that's something we ought to be encouraging? Do we, do, should we be uncomfortable about our universities relying heavily on an influx of students from countries such as China, India and so on? Or is it just another sort of sign of what a high quality sector we have there? Um, I mean, I wouldn't be worried about a huge influx of students from anywhere because, I mean, the whole the whole point for students is they arrive, they study, they leave, and the sort of the constant you have a sort of constantly, roughly constantly sized population of students at chance. The one thing I'd say is that because we're now giving out these graduate visas for two years, sort of post um, study, the assumption that assumption that people sort of arrive and go is still kind of valid, except now it's going to be for five years ish rather than sort of um for free so you would end up with sort of a slight net increase in the size of population of the uk as a result um and i, I mean I, i'm not to bang on on about the same topic over and over again but with all of this if we're sitting here saying we're going to make the population larger we're going to welcome the world's talents we're going to do all these fantastic things to increase economic growth it's well this is all very well and good and it, you know, it is indeed all very well and good where are we going to house them because if you come, if you turn around and say we've built this wonderful new immigration system that's much more liberal and much more sort of welcoming of talent, great, fantastic, um, but you really need to do some housing housing reform now because, um, I mean, uh, because it's my preferred policy measure for dealing with everything. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir when it comes to housing reform. I think one of my biggest disappointments actually in the last two or three years is that the government went from having what was a very exciting sounding set of housing reforms that really answered quite a lot of the things that the likes of me and you have been calling for and has just constantly has been rowing backwards and backwards and backwards to the point that we're now we now have a very kind of unradical plan for housing based in my opinion 
mainly on the complaints of backbench Conservative MPs and local campaigners rather than what the country actually needs. Um, and I think one of the, we well, just to briefly return to Partygate, that's one of my fears about it, is that because the government is in a more precarious political position, it's going to be even less inclined to embark on anything kind of radical or potentially politically unpopular. Plus, we've only got maybe two years until the next election anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, so just, I know we're preaching some converted here, but if I could just give my sort of elevator pitch to the audience on why housing reform is desperately needed. The first and very obvious point is that the cost of living crisis would be you know, we're sitting here talking about, oh my goodness, bills might go up by a couple hundred quid a year. That would be a much easier thing to absorb if your rental costs were several hundred, several hundred pounds a year lower, um, or you know, several thousand pounds lower in an ideal world. And it's insane to me that we spend all this time talking about these small things on the margin to to address these issues, where actually like one of the biggest issues is, is simply the fact that housing is so constrained in the areas where it needs to be. And it also throttles economic growth. Um, there's some really interesting studies in America where you know, if you'd moved... The zoning systems in, I think it was, you know, York, um, San Francisco, and, and maybe Seattle, to the level of the average city. So you know, not like a not super low, unrestrictive, just to the average. The US GDP would be a ridiculously quantity high risk. I think I think it was four percent or something like that. It was way massive. yeah, I think it was higher. So you know, if you think about um, adding four percent to your income simply through having a few more houses built in London, that seems like a pretty good deal to me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. it's insane that we allow local vetoes on this to the level of, you know, yes, this might add a, you know, a percentage point to national GDP, but it involves some houses being built next to a council and he doesn't particularly like it. Um, and the other thing to add is that I really think the Liberal Democrats do not get enough stick on this because they basically sat there and uh, they run on this national sort of fairly youth vibe. And then on the local level, their whole policy is we are the nimbiest of the nimbiest and we'll help you block everything. And the Conservative Party, having been in government for coming up for, for 12 years now, um, or, or just crossing over actually, is obviously going to lose by-elections. You don't expect them to win, um, and particularly the circumstances in which some of these by-elections have been called. Um, but you get, they get an enormous fright from the Liberal Democrats, and uh, they turn around and say, oh my goodness, we can't possibly ever build any more houses again. Incidentally, just to, to come back to a previous point, um, I always, on, on the sort of Remain thing, I always found it quite interesting that actually um, well, people sort of persuade, portrayed Brexit as this great racist endeavour. If you go off and you look at the Migration Observatory uh, sort of data on this, you know, where, they, where to read that voters had an ethnic hierarchy of sort of preferences for immigration, um, Remain voters preferred Romanian immigrants to Pakistanis and Nigerians, and Leave voters viewed them all basically equivalent to Pakistanis slightly ahead. So actually, if anything, it was the Leave voters who didn't really care where you came from as long as you had the skills, and uh, Remain voters were somewhat more uh, European biased. Um, I should say, to be fair, everyone preferred Australia, France, and Poland to all three of the below. So, yeah. Right. Okay. So there are there is a hierarchy of. Uh... There is a hierarchy, but it, it it seems to be like you know basically are you particularly culturally close to Britain, Australia? Having I mean I lived there for three years, and I can say it's pretty much the same country, just a bit more Americanized. France, obviously, you know, long historical ties, and and Poland sort of has a huge Polish population here, um, whereas I would guess maybe sort of. Pakistan, Romania, Nigeria are viewed as being a little bit more culturally distant and therefore sort of more interchangeable. Sorry, no, no, it's an interesting point um, to, to sort of loop back to immigration there. So we've ended up talking, I like that on our podcast, even when housing isn't one of the allotted topics, we always end up talking about it because it is so central to everything. We're going to slightly swerve now, Sam, to a different topic and one that really uh, gets our collective goat in the kind of think tank world. I, I've yet to meet anyone who is hugely in favour of this 
bit of legislation. And this is the draft uh, online safety bill. Now, this is an absolutely enormous bit of legislation. I think the last time I checked, and it, it is, I think it's being tweaked, but the last time I looked, it was 255 pages long. We had a piece from Sam Dimitriou from the Entrepreneurs Network, and he said it reads as though every single, uh, you know, person with a grievance about the internet has managed to get a clause stuck into the bill. Um, could you just outline for us, because you've written a very uh, punchy piece about this for CapEx, and you describe it as going from the nanny state to the granny state, where a sort of intrusive, kind of pernickety look at uh, everyone's internet usage. I mean... If you were advocating for this bill, which you're not, um, but if you were, what would you say? What are the intentions behind the bill? Why is it supposedly necessary? It's been sold on the basis of, oh, my goodness, won't somebody think of the children? Um, I, th- I think is basically the, 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 the selling point for it. Um, and there's lots of sort of polling, push polling, actually, that's been sort of commissioned for it, in which they basically say, yes, encryption means your messages are safe. And yes, encryption means you can do your banking on a day-to-day basis without any issues. And yes, isn't, isn't it very good for that? But um, the same things that means your messages are safe means that the messages of other people with less good intentions are safe. And therefore, in order to stop child abuse, we need to ban encryption and uh, prevent anonymity online and do all, all of these other things we've been trying to do for years and have just realised can be sort of advanced through this uh, this framing. And the problem with this is, is it's other than sort of being, well, I mean, there's several problems, actually. And, you know, the most obvious one in the face of it is that it's something of a hammer to... to uh, to the internet as a whole, in that it just fundamentally attacks several of the most important functions of its uh, aspects of its functioning, um, with a huge amount of unintended uh, consequence and a huge amount of collateral damage. The other thing that I'm concerned about is we've talked a lot about things like privacy. One of the things in the bill that um, a lot of people are uh, concerned about is the idea of legal but harmful speech, for example. I mean, I just think this is a very strange precedent to set. You wouldn't have it in the offline world where you'd suddenly... Well, actually, maybe you do with uh, non-crime hate incidents, um, which are thankfully now uh, a thing of the past. But the other thing is that this is this is going to have a, a impose very big costs on businesses because monitoring your platform to ensure that no you know, nasty content gets put on it. You might be able to do this if you're Meta or Google or Amazon or whoever it is. But this, the scope of this bill is enormous, isn't it? It basically covers kind of any firm that has any kind of message board or forum is potentially, uh, you know, going to have to adhere to this. And the estimate is it's going to cost sort of, the figure I've seen is £1.7 billion over the next decade for companies to comply with this legislation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a... A truly vast uh, sum. I mean, and just to be clear, I was given the case for the bill as I was asked to. I was asked to give the case in favour. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't even covered half the problem of the bill because I've just uh, given an introduction to it from the best impression I can do of an advocate. And I mean, coming back to the point of encryption just briefly, um, what it's really doing is attacking this idea of end-to-end encryption where I send a message to you from my device to your device and no one in the middle can read it. You know, I think it's a reasonable expectation. Um, I don't particularly want the government to be able to read messages that I send to my partner. I don't particularly want to be able to read uh, messages that I send to... Well, I certainly actually don't want to be able to read the messages that I send to people in Hong Kong and in Russia. So, you know, it's... Uh, and I don't particularly want to be able to access things I might, might send to my, my lawyer either. I think that's a reasonable expectation. Um, and so what the online safety bill does here is it doesn't explicitly ban this technology, but it does this really weasley thing of saying, well, you have an obligation as a platform to make sure that no legal content can be uploaded. 
Oh, and by the way, that includes via end-to-end -end encryption. So if you have no oversight of it, you still have the legal risk associated with it. So there's incentive to sort of weaken it or build in backdoors. But the thing is, you can't build in a safe backdoor. Once you have it there, anyone can access it. So it's basically just inviting a huge amount of trouble. But yeah, as you say, this this that's one problem. But this idea of legal but harmful is just completely insane. If it's you know, it, it, this idea that you should now be regulating legal speech and MPs are going to sit down and decide, well, this is legal, but it's harmful, so you shouldn't be able to say it. Is is you know, as as you say, it's a very granny state. Um, and it, this this whole bill is sort of it's technologically literate. It's um, very much sort of harking back to an earlier era of censorship, and it's extremely damaging to businesses. Um, Anything where you can provide user-generated content to other users, so where you can send messages, where you can upload text, is going to be covered by this. So Google Docs, I can, well, I mean, obviously, actually, when I file for CapEx, I quite often send via Google Doc, and you can have a look at it. That's user-generated content which Google needs oversight of, which government needs oversight of, and which would be covered by this bill. So it's, it's just going to be an absolute killer for smaller firms, because if you're sitting here saying, you know what, we really want a British Google, we really want a British um, Facebook you're now sitting there going, well, actually, before we can launch it, we need to be able to make sure we can moderate all the content that's put up, because if we can't, they might find us 10% of our revenues. So it, it's just, it's a classic of the genre of the government basically deciding on the problem, listening to the sort of lobbying groups on one side, and then saying, well, it'd be really costly to deal with this by funding the police, so why would we just outsource all the costs to private businesses? Yeah, I think this is a, a sort of, I think you mentioned in your CapEx piece, this is a broader problem with the way that the government has approached quite a lot of problems, is that they, they as you say, they're sort of outsourcing the, the enforcement of it. Sam, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately. We've had so much to uh, chat about this week. Um, my main hope for for the online safety bill is that it somehow gets endlessly kicked down the road and doesn't ever actually become law. I think it's going to have a lot of problems in the House of Lords, fingers crossed, so could at the very least be delayed. Um, but yeah, the more people who basically complain about it to the relevant ministers, the better, as far as I'm concerned, because I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it would be a disaster for British tech and, by extension, for the British economy. Um, anyway, Sam, thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to your next piece for CapEx, which I've no doubt will be coming in the near future. Do uh, join us for our next CapEx podcast, which is next week with the Conservative MP John Penrose. And we'll be talking about conservative solutions to poverty, which is a very apt theme during the current cost of living crisis. Thanks very much and uh, see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.